Coming Up for Air is a podcast that speaks to families dealing with a loved one's substance use disorder. We are produced in collaboration with alliesinrecovery.net, the premier e-learning platform and online community for families affected by addiction. We often hear from Dominique Simone Levine, expert in the craft method of intervention, with 25 years of recovery herself. Other regular hosts include recovery enthusiast Annie Highwater, author of several books and countless blog posts, and Laurie McDougall, also an advocate for families dealing with addiction a blogger, and the founder of Rest Support Groups in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Now, coming up for air. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I am really excited about this conversation today. It is with one of my most absolute favorite subjects, which is DBT, or better known as Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, which I often reference and credit as being one of the final caps on my own personal recovery and healing story from post-traumatic stress and years of trauma and dysfunction. So that said, today's conversation is with Lisa Bond, who is an RN and DBT specialist. Lisa is passionate about helping individuals and their families and supports using the evidence-based principles and skills of dialectical behavior therapy. Her enthusiasm for the work comes from seeing clients experience relief from emotional suffering while they build mastery in making and keeping relationships thriving daily and building their lives in such a way as to make life worth embracing every day. In DBT, we call this having a life worth living. While maintaining certification as an RN for over 25 years, Lisa successfully completed intensive training through the behavioral tech in DBT. She participates as a member of two consultation teams, is a trained family connections program leader, and offers a free monthly educational support group for families and friends of individuals with a variety of disorders of emotional dysregulation. Additionally, Lisa continues to work with Dr. Laura Hill and the team of at the Center for Balanced Living, where for over 10 years she has specialized in program development and treatment for eating disorders. Lisa's mission is to deliver cost-effective, evidence-based, effective intervention for adults and adolescents, 13 and up, their families and supports, this is what I call the entourage, (laughs) and to increase awareness of DBT as an effective treatment modality for a wide range of mental health issues. The goal is to reduce suffering and enhance the quality of our clients lives and I honestly could not love and encourage that more I invited her on to share her experience again DBT is one of the processes I credit for not only changing my life but most likely saving my mind so with that said welcome and thank you so much for coming on our podcast I am so happy to be here and talk about DBT. Even walking in, this office is so zen. I just feel like in your presence and in the presence of this calm, my cortisol dropped. So that's really good. Take a breath. (laughs) We're here. Very zen-like. So um, for those who are not aware, if you would not mind kind of telling us what DBT is and how you personally came to be involved with it. Dialectical behavioral therapy was originally um, developed by Dr. Marshall Linehan from University of Seattle uh, to treat the most suicidal patients, people who, with whom multiple therapies had had no benefit whatsoever. And from my understanding, she stopped her work at the time and started researching every treatment that had been used up to that time and dissected the parts of that treatment that actually worked. She took all of those um, evidence-based successful interventions, collated them into one, and added mindfulness practices Mm -hmm. and the concept of radical acceptance, both of those coming from a um, both a, a Zen Buddhism um, kind of philosophy as well as her background in um, Roman Catholic spirituality. Moving those together, she then started working with her students to test and to see how this would work and how it would make a difference for people. Fast forward now, 30, 40 years later, there are multiple um, 
re what do we want to call it um, replicated studies of her work that show that this works in many different ways some people need the, the entire comprehensive package to um, get the most benefit which would include once a week um, visits with a with a therapist in addition to a two-hour skills group once a mm-hmm. week there are other people who only need to go to a skills group some people need to be in skills group for six months to two years years to three years other people can be in there for six months and be done it really just depends on what your difficulties are and what you're trying to regulate or your distress levels or how long it takes or things like that and one thing I love about the process is that I have seen in particular in the groups I've worked with in families that it works for people that have emotional distress PTSD and chronic P- or I'm sorry, complex PTSD. And for those that don't know the difference, PTSD is typically post-traumatic stress from an event. You know, that's a traumatic event such as violence or rape or something like that. C- complex PTSD is chronic stress over time. Maybe an abusive relationship or um, suffering with an addicted loved one. It works with trauma and conflict and stress and... I think even Asperger's and all manner of things that need to be brought into a mindful regulation. Absolutely. The skill... One thing to clarify, however, DBT by itself probably would not be um, the only treatment needed for complex PTSD. Right. Um, You know, there are other trauma-based treatments, and and there are trauma treatments that we use within stage two and stage three of DBT, but um, by itself... For a complex PTSD, there's probably multiple, multiple treatments. Similar to addiction, to it exactly. would be kind of just a, an added piece. An added piece. My favorite added piece. Because <laughs> when we're talking about learning how to dial up and down the intensity of your emotional um, experience, yeah. we don't come out of the womb with a guidebook that tells us how to do that. As far as tolerating distress of something that you have no power over and cannot change, you're completely helpless in that moment. How do you tolerate that? DBT gives you skills to use to be able to do that. Sometimes the only goal is don't make it worse. Oh, I like that. That may yeah. be as good as it gets, and that's fine. Yeah. It's being able to be effective to do just what's needed in this moment, which is quite the opposite of perfection. Right. It gives us a piece to say, in this moment, I only need to do this. That's my goal right now, right? Yeah. And that can kind of take you from 60 to zero. Absolutely. Especially if you've got, if you are born in or marinating in or experiencing at any level of life chaotic situations that are producing this distress in you, and you've been handed habits, tools, and coping skills from people who couldn't handle it themselves, how do you go from 60 to zero? So this is something to introduce to, okay, let's start turning that ship around. Yeah, and you, what we know now is that there's a there's a trait that determines how sensitive we are to our emotions, and emotions are electrical and they're neurohormonal. So your sensitivity may be predetermined um, by this trait. Now you add an invalidating environment, yeah. like a chaotic family or a, a family where there's an abuse, neglect, um, addiction involved. You're going to have then an amplification yeah. of all of that. And even if you don't have the trait being born into that situation where you're consistently invalidated, there are going to be kind of amplified emotional experiences. So what I'm feeling at a level five intensity, this individual may be feeling at a 15. Yeah. And that is their reality. It right. is it is horrible to be that way. So we need to we need to help them um, learn how to kind of write a user's manual for their own brain and for their own nervous system. Teach them the skills that they can then try and practice to custom fit them to themselves. Because there is no rubber stamp. Just like right. in addiction, there's no one answer. No, there isn't. We no have. one size fits all. No. Right. No. And, and you know what's interesting? When you mentioned that trait, um, I had just read recently that the DSM doesn't um, recognize complex PTSD and that a lot of situations are sometimes identified as borderline personality traits, which is those highs and lows, but it really could just be the after effects of trauma. So I don't know either way, but I know that I've certainly was for a time one of those people that would feel things at emotional 15 level and had to go from 60 to zero because I could go from zero to 60 in a moment, highly triggered. So that 
I, I read this question the other day, and I don't know if you know the answer, but speaking of that trait, what's the difference between those who are crushed by suffering and those who grow and thrive from it? What's the difference? And, and, and what do you do about that trait if you have it? You know, we if you have the trait, the it, the goal is to really learn how to step back, observe your own body doing what it does as it responds to your emotional experience, and then to be able to intervene, to be able to dial that intensity up and down as needed. That sense of mastery and competency is a, is a real gift, yeah. and it takes away so much of that amplified fear. Repeating yeah. that, from what I understand, yeah. over and over and over again starts to change us um, on, a, on a neuronal level, and we begin then to be able to have new neuropathways that, um, what I want to say, that are stronger, that are more resilient, that um, are more tolerant. Of, of these chemicals, of this electrical energy that's being uh, deposited. Yes, and so just like we don't know what might have introduced somebody to addiction, whether it was family introduced or from an injury or an experiment, is the trait, we don't really know what might cause that. It could be environment, nature versus nurture. There's really no way to figure it out. It's just a matter of finding that person's solution. Exactly. That makes a lot exactly. of sense. We, there's no rubber stamp. We have right. to partner and walk through this together. We can't do it for somebody but we can do it with them. Right. And that's one of the differences in DBT is we do phone coaching, which is very different from, from other treatments. We, um, especially in the beginning, when clients are learning the skills, trying them on, we encourage them to contact us. And right. when they've tried something and it isn't working, call your therapist, call your coach, and let them give you some suggestions. That connection makes a huge difference. Right. It's kind of walking them out of those moments. Yeah. And then they, until they can start walk, it becomes habitual to walk yourself out of them. I do want to mention, you mentioned the, um, the diagnostic problems that come up with complex PTSD and borderline personality disorder. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a hugely important Peace, because not everybody who is emotionally sensitive has borderline personality right. disorder, and there is a lot of overlap. And one of yeah. the concerns is that people are being diagnosed as one or the other, and they're not getting the treatment that they need. Right. So a really good assessment by someone who knows how to really look at that and, and parse out what is the root cause is going to be super helpful. Right. And because I know I, I certainly when I was going through my time of trauma and I've been through a few of them, but when I really took the reins of sitting down, doing the work, working it out, finding it out, analyzing all of those things, some of those internal structures and reactions kind of mimicked borderline personality. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And, and I had yet, to be led out diff quite differently. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So, I mean, it's, it is important to, you know, I can't say enough. When you're looking for a therapist, usually just a layman mm -hmm. is looking for a therapist because something's in trouble. <laughs> a marriage, a relationship, you're acting out, you've lost a job. Something is sending you into therapy if it's not really your your typical tra trajectory. When you're searching, you go through the phone book or Google, I don't think a lot of people realize that there are specialties. There's emotionally focused therapy, which I experienced that as well. There's EMDR, which is a lot of trauma. There's CBT, which is familiar with DBT. DBT as well, but it's really about finding a fit. It's kind of like one diet doesn't fit for every person's fitness level. And I think when you go into that, know what you're looking for. Is it emotional regulation? Is it behavior patterns and things like that? Because if you find a wrong fit, you can find yourself in trouble and discouraged. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So that is really, really important. Um, I know I just wanted to bring in a couple of notes that I took from my own DBT experience and what I got from it. Um, the radical acceptance piece. I had to learn that all will be well and that all things work together for good. Mm -hmm. You know, I had to have that panoramic view of that. So how do you teach or begin to incorporating that into someone who's experiencing a high level of stress? Um, I think we oftentimes start from a point of what is the unwanted reality? In this moment, what in your life is something that you really don't approve of, you don't want to accept, uh, you don't agree with it, and yet 
it is the reality. And then we start to look at what will it look like if you accept that and drop the struggle rope, right? Right. And move. How are you, how are you going to be physically? How are you going to be in voice tone? How are you going right. to be in your behavior as you accept that? How will that look different than if you are going to not accept it? If you're going to be unwilling to accept the reality, are you going to obsess about it? Are you going to, you know, take yourself into a, a position where you're constantly in argument over it? Are you going to be um, out studying every book that's ever been written um, on how to fix this issue over which you have no control? That relates a lot to people who love somebody in addiction, whether it's a son or daughter, husband or wife, and you you are in so much fear. And I, I know for me personally, when it's been my family members, I would believe that I was on the clock against their death. So I couldn't accept it as reality. So I think coming into a place of accept this, does that mean I have to be okay with it and it's going to be this way forever? I think that's the belief system you're up against. Absolutely. And you know what? Radical acceptance, we can practice it for moments at a time. Yeah. Over time, it will grow into an acceptance. However, we never want to radically accept something that we have power to change. We're only talking about radically accepting something over which we have no power to change. So if I'm the mother of an addicted child, what I'm accepting is that in this moment, they are in a struggle for their life. And in this moment, there is going to be fear and there's going to be dread and there's going to be sadness that I'm carrying on my back like a backpack and it will be with me and I am still going to move forward on my valued pathway, live my life worth living, have being open to anything I can do to help and support, accepting that in this moment there is nothing that I can do. It's their journey. It's their path. I can be here to support, to love, to educate to provide um, resources as needed. It's a very active and very uncomfortable Mm -hmm. place to be in radical acceptance. However, it also creates the difference between pain, which is part of life, right? That is a painful situation. And suffering, which is convincing myself that I have to fix this and I have to go as fast as I can and jump through every hoop because I have to control this and I have to fix them. Right. That creates suffering. So suffering we do to ourselves by not accepting, by being unwilling to tolerate the reality that we don't want. But pain, we all have. Pain, we have the ability to tolerate pain. Right, We as humans do hard things, and we have skills that help us do it even better. Right. Um, Yeah. And that acceptance, I think, in terms of, like, when somebody has a spouse leave or or infidelity, or a parent that they just maybe don't receive love or support from, that's a painful thing when you don't accept it too and you're always looking at how it should be or how you don't want it to be. And that's where the struggle is. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I wrote, um, my second book, Unbroken, I wrote it about, it's kind of a year in the life of adversity, whether you have an addicted child or you're just faced with a crisis like that. And one of the first chapters is I feel like I'm drowning. And I talked about how I went actually interviewed people who had experienced a drowning experience and survived it. And all of them said there was this moment where I I stopped thrashing and struggling and I had this peace come over me. And soon after, I either found my footing or floated to the surface or rescue came. These were the survivors. And I always thought that was so interesting because when you're drowning and struggle, the more you thrash and fight, it seems like the lower you sink. Exactly. It's like quicksand. Yeah. The answer for getting out of quicksand is to just open your arms, lie flat like you're trying to float in water, and very gently move your feet. And then your, your body weight will equalize across the quicksand and you'll come to a place where then right. you can roll out of it. Um, Struggle sinks radical, Right. Mm-hmm. Radical acceptance. This is Allies in Recovery member GP Traveler. This site is a lifesaver for me. It was the first place recommended to me when I contacted Samsha, and I have clung to it ever since. Um, I also learned from my own DBT experience about distraction responses, and I love those so much. I I came up with this, and I think I saw it on um, an an 
interview with a neuroscientist and I adopted it as my own, the 90 second rule. And that is um, if you're in road rage, sometimes it's a matter of breathing. <laughs> or if um, I'm in a texting situation that's becoming heated or a phone call or an interview with a client or whatever. And I feel that surging at 80% or above of that zero to 60. Mm-hmm. I know to take at least 90 seconds before I respond and deal because you're going to be com- completely in a different place, whether emotionally and, and even chemically. So take it 90 seconds. I would walk my dog or hold an ice cube until it melted. And sometimes 90 seconds had to be more like 15 minutes. I've got four brothers. And if they're all coming at once, I need yeah. that. I need to put space on things. So I, I would love to hear your thoughts on that distraction. When we talk about what, what you're just describing, what we talk about in DBT is a stop skill. Yeah. In that moment, you know, you visualize that. that big red stop sign and you think in your head, stop, and you literally freeze for a moment. Take a step back and observe what's happening, what what's going on right now. You bring yourself into that moment. Take yourself out of a reaction state and into yeah. an intentional state. Um, and then you breathe. Breathe, yeah. Yeah, you pace your breathing for a moment and proceed mindfully um, into that reaction so that you are now in control. Instead of reacting, you're intentionally responding. When we talk about distraction, we're talking about a situation where in order to avoid making things worse in a crisis, I am going to distract myself by turning my focus into something that will occupy my brain, hopefully in a, in a positive or pleasurable way. And that could be using any of your five senses. It can be engaging in um, certain activities, whatever works for you to be able to distract. want to be careful with distraction because that can become a way of life. Yeah. And that's avoidance. Avoidance. (laughs) Exactly. The word for that is avoidance. Right. So we're talking about using distraction and crisis in, in times when you need that little pull your attention away from here before I go down the rabbit hole. I took some training from this therapist during some of my recovery um, work to work with families, and he described his avoidance. He said he had this process where he would not want to confront something or deal with an uncomfortable colleague or, you know, just something uncomfortable that he was procrastinating. So he would order a therapy book off of Amazon, and then he would race the tracking number and try to beat it home, and he would find himself going down this (laughs) rabbit hole instead of just dealing. And so I actually wrote about that, too, and said that sometimes when I'm avoiding, I'll find myself scrolling kind of mindlessly through social media and I inevitably will find something that really irritates me you know or just kind of twists me up and that's really the difference between okay taking a breath Mm -hmm. and avoiding dealing with what you're feeling because you got to deal with your feelings you don't have to dwell in them or run from them but you got to deal with them and and I think balance is really important with that yeah it sure is Um, and that's our goal is to have right. balance, not black and white, not either end right. of the spectrum. We just want to be in balance, and balance is a wide area. Yeah. It's not a point on a line. Yeah. I love that Don't Make It Worse school, and it reminds me of, I saw this interview with Brene Brown, who's one of my favorite authors She's and awesome. speakers. She's amazing. She was saying that breath work is so important, and I've incorporated that, too. I mean, breath work can powerfully soothe the moment. She said, you know, when you start trying to be healthy, people will come to you to incite a reaction. And if they come and say, oh, they said this or that. When you're healing and healthy, you know, to take a break and breathe. Who's they? You know, before you get jump on that roller coaster. And I think sometimes those moments can make the difference between big mistakes in friendships and relationships before you just take that emotional hook and you're off to the races and all of a sudden conflict is breaking out everywhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what that's where that distraction is powerfully helpful. I think feelings are like whether they pass through. I definitely learned that that kind of relates as well from DBT. Yeah, we talk about the think about think about that that heartbeat diagram that you always see um, on the monitor when a person is in the hospital on the television. Someone's uh, and they're looking at their heartbeat. Right. You see that little electrical wave. Our our emotions cause a similar electrical wave when they fire. The wave begins. It peaks. It comes down and then it dissipates right right and at the same time we secrete neurohormones into our system and those are oftentimes connected to the specific emotion so if we start to realize that our emotional experience is finite emotion is only going to last from seconds to a couple of minutes we can be so astute as to sit back and observe our emotion when it starts as it rises when it peaks and as it comes back down to baseline 
Right. And when you can do that and you can choose whether or not to re-trigger it, your your emotional experience becomes very manageable. When you're yeah. very, very sensitive to your emotion, any emotion can feel out of control. Yeah, hair trigger. So, yeah, if I feel anything, I'm out of control. You start to realize that, oh, wait, I can actually stop, step back, right. and observe what's happening to me. Now I'm in control. Right. It's almost like those red dashboard or alarm lights that go off. That's, you that's kind great. of start controlling them. Yeah, yeah, it's like alert, alert, alert. Yeah. But then when you start managing them, you don't feel as high alert. Exactly. Right. At least that's been my experience. Um, I also learned... For me personally, and I've heard this in a few podcasts, I'm obsessed with podcasts that relate to all of this, that trauma isn't really what takes so long to heal. It's resisting the feelings that can last for years. Because you think you don't really need to invest the same amount of years that you had a dysfunctional life or relationship or parenting. You don't need to invest that and that amount of time and work. You can relatively t- quickly begin turning that ship around. It's kind of like, you know, weight loss. It does take time mm-hmm. and it takes work and effort and that time and you know you set back and get back up and and you'll fail and succeed but it doesn't take years and years and years I don't believe to heal trauma and traumatic responses that are kind of how your brain is grooved to act if that makes yeah, sense. We start, we start to make changes really quickly as as treatment begins however in and and I'm not a trauma therapist um, by any means, I have some information and, and some education, but um, my understanding is that to heal, we have to heal the damage that's been caused and then build alternate neuropathways. It's the building, the healing may mm-hmm. take time, right. but new neuropathways can develop fairly quickly right. as compared to what you're saying, the years of damage. Yeah, and adding to those years of damage that we've sometimes taken on um, numbing and com- and coping oh, yeah. skills. We've gone into alcoholism or bad relationships or workaholism or whatever has been our avoidance yeah. and we've resisted facing what's been what's happened and dealing and healing and moving on. And I think that's that distraction and I don't know, getting off the path of dealing with it is really what takes decades. It's when you get stuck in a different direction, I think. Absolutely. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. This is a really big one for me is that being validated. You know, when I came from this family, there's I have a lot of siblings and there was a lot of um, addiction and religious dysfunction and all of that. So there was a lot of invalidating and things were put into a context that they were normal or you're too sensitive or ignore it or you're at fault for someone else's behavior. And that invalidation can make you so crazy when you know your intuition or what's going on or truth or right from wrong or whatever. And you're invalidated. I, I, I mean, that just does something, I think, for somebody that's experienced a lot of hostile situations. But validating, you know, when somebody starts to come along and validate your experience, this happened to you and I'm sure it felt terrible. You know, I think that that is, I don't know how to express it. That's worth its weight in gold. It absolutely is. Um, validation is necessary to make and keep relationships. Yeah. But we also have to be able to validate ourselves. And that's really difficult for a person who's come out of situations like you're describing. Right. Because there's a learned pattern of invalidation. So what happens is we have this constantly chaotic life. And that the op- op- opposite end, we're managing it with self-invalidation. Well, you're so stupid. Get over yourself. It's your fault. Stop making mountains out of molehills. Mm-hmm. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Right. That makes no sense at all. We start to believe that that's true. And when someone actually says, no, how could you have done it ever any other way? Of course that's what you did. Of course that's how you felt. Yeah. If I were you in that situation, I may very well have done the same thing. Yeah. This makes sense to me. That allows a person to start to find what we call their wise mind, their truth, yeah. their center, their core, their self, who they are. Um, it, because it, everything is external prior to that. Right. I'm, I, my my uh, bar is based on you or you or you or this situation yeah. or this person on television rather than internally who I am. We come with a self, but we may have right. lost it or never even found it. 
Yeah. Or been talked out of it or not to listen to it. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember my first experience. I had a friend that was finishing. I don't know if it was her master's, but she's a trauma therapist for grieving children. So we were friends while she was in schooling. And I very rarely opened up about my family situation. I really didn't gloss over it or present a a pretty image, but I just kept it to myself in order to get through it. I, I didn't really look at it like I was a victim. It was like I was managing it, you know, and it was embarrassing or whatever to come from such madness. But... What I did let her onto was just on the heels of an argument I had with my mom that was really stressful. And she said, well, I would be so furious. Mm-hmm. I would be so furious. This is a long road for you to walk. And th- those two sentences put together absolutely broke me free. Just, it was like the beginning of, oh, my goodness, somebody else gets it and sees the truth that I have a whole group of people kind of not seeing what's really going on here behind the scenes and beyond the surface and somebody hears me and that you know wasn't about making me a victim or siding with me incorrectly but it was just that validation completely redirected my life that moment it's transformative yeah 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 so the dbt incorporates that is that in the comprehensive or would that just be kind of the skill session that's in the skill session the comprehensive is um I don't know how I want to say this. The comprehensive is not for everyone. Right. But if you need the comprehensive, you're going to get way more bang for your buck by going that route. That being said, you have to be able to commit to pretty much dropping all other things (laughs) and being committed to that therapy for the next six months of your life. Yeah. You show up every time, you go to every class, you do the homework. There is a lot of homework. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is, you are saying in this moment, my suffering is so profound right. that I will do what is needed in order to get myself out of this this hole. And it is, it is a dedication, it is a right. commitment, and your therapist is committing to stay the course with you for however long it takes. There are diary cards to, um, to complete, there are readings to do, assignments to do. Typically, you're expected to also be engaged in something in, in the community or something in your life working 17 hours a week plus going to this. Um, you may have kids, you may have work, you may have right. school as well, and you're committing that no matter what, you're going to get to that session and you're going to get to that class. Additionally, you're going to participate in the phone coaching um, option as well. So it's a it's a big commitment. Right. Yeah. It is a beautiful outcome, though. It is a beautiful... I mean, I can openly admit I went through it because I wanted to learn about it. I wanted to learn every avenue of therapy and healing there was because I wanted to be well and healthy and have peace so bad. So I went through that and ended up needing every bit of it and put it to use in my life and refer back to it even still. So I didn't really show up to be a student once I was in there. I really found my way forward. For you. Yeah, it was wonderful. But I could say that the workbook might work for some people Mm -hmm. and for others, the support group. So it just depends on where you're at, what you're able to take on. But it's powerful no matter what level, I think. The skills are are invaluable. We even have a curriculum now developed by um, Dr. Liz Mazza and her husband that is a curriculum based for schools. Um, wow. All the work has been done, uh, and it's an abbreviated form of skills that is being taught in school systems around the country. And wow. this is the new gap effort is to try and get diagnostics done by age 12. Used to be that we would um, put off diagnosing until after age 19. Now we're saying age 12, let's get these kids yeah. diagnosed, let's give them the skills they need so we don't have to use the medicines, we don't have to have the lifelong right. damage, the addictions, the things that right. come out of being the, so sensitive, right? The behavior that everyone judges that behind it is years of exactly. insufficient childhood. Yeah. So let's yeah. give them the skills. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I was one of those kids. I've heard it described as walking into school with an invisible backpack full of trauma and would go home to that. And, you know, that's all in my book. And I only say it to say that was so needed. If, if I would have been 10, 11, 12 years old and had somebody kind of start charting my progress of mindfulness and distraction, it would have probably, you know, taken care of things a lot earlier. But you get to where you get. That skill of mindfulness is useful for every person of every age. Mm-hmm. 
even my my little granddaughter, um, when she would have tantrums at age two and age three, I would teach her to put that piece of pizza in her hand, pretend it's a piece of pizza, take a deep breath and let's cool it off. Oh, and we'd good. cool off the little piece of pizza and down she would come. Right. And then, you know, even age three, we can be teaching, okay, let's sit like a frog. Let's just sit very quietly, watch for the fly, watch for the fly, watch for not get your fly. And down she would, you know, we would right. just practice this. It makes brings a you back. difference and brings you back. Right. We don't have to suffer. Right. I'd heard a Navy SEAL recently say they learned to focus on the push-up they were doing. That was his mindfulness. Because when you're training for Navy SEALs, that's the toughest in the world. And they would do thousands of push-ups. And you can't look at it like, how many have I done? And how many are ahead? You've got to do the one you're in. It's kind of like a runner. Run the mile you're in. Yeah. You have to just bring it back to where you're at. And that's life-saving. And it sounds so trite when we talk about it. And But when you sit in class and you try it on and somebody's leading you through it right. experientially that's when it starts to kick in oh I notice a difference right this works and think about it all this is chemical and physical electricity and neurohormones it's going to take body work yeah to be able to you can't think your way out of it that's why CBT isn't enough it's a part of it it's a huge part of it and a valued part it's not enough yeah it's not just about directing the thoughts and behaviors you've got to get into the feelings and mindfulness and chemical part of it exactly yeah I absolutely I mean I love it so much um I read in one of the DBT workbooks and I can't agree enough like I said I come from a big chaotic family and there is I always tell people I will not argue with anyone anywhere anytime especially not a stranger on the internet because if I wanted to get in an argument I'd just call a family member because there's always (laughs) always one going on ready a du jour so that said it's hard to argue and be mindful at the same time. You have to breathe through that. And if you breathe through that, you're going to have a lot more of your own power in the midst of terrible arguments. Absolutely. If I'm arguing, I'm not. I'm thinking about my next response. Yeah. And I am I'm not there. I'm not present in that moment with that individual. Right. In order to have an effective relationship or an effective communication or interaction, I need to know what my goal is for the interaction. I need to know, you know, is it my self-respect? Is it getting what I want and being understood? Is it maintaining this relationship? I, I need to keep that in mind, and then I need to be skillful in getting what I want. Right. Whether it's to maintain that relationship or improve my own self-respect, get get my objective met. I need to know arguing is not mindful. Right. Right. But we can drop the rope. Yeah. That's a skill. I can refuse to play tug of war. I can drop my end, stop. They can continue. And then when there's a, a... a moment to breathe, we can refocus and, right. and proceed mindfully. It's again with intent instead right. of reacting. And I think understanding that dropping the rope doesn't mean you admit defeat or they're right or that's failure. I don't think that's it at all. I think when you're both tugging the rope, nobody's winning. Exactly. You, I, you're th- stuck. I think you don't realize that, right? And it's uncomfortable. Think about um, you rub two sticks together, right? It right. creates friction and then it creates heat and then it yeah, creates heat. fire. It's right. uncomfortable. But when we let go, we can breathe. Yeah. And then our left brain goes back online and we can move forward. Right. It's, it's so important, I think, to become so self-aware because you can sense when you're you're starting to become agitated and add heat. Like it's, your feet start tapping or doing a pencil. Yeah. Or, and that's before you're even in a moment of trigger to where you then escalate because we know that it happens in steps. So when you start catching that heat rising, that's where you, I think, need to tend to because the the brain is not available for logic when it's in that limbic, emotional, fight, flight, freeze, you know, space. Right, it goes offline. Right. It literally is programmed to flip the switch. Yes. And it's off. Right. So you cannot be effective in that moment. Step one is to come back down to yeah. where your left brain will get back online and you can move forward. Right. I just, I'd taken a trauma training that talked about how you are so unaware and conditioned when you're doing your normal drive to work every day. So when you turn on the turn signal to go left, is that up or down? Yeah. It's down. It's you down. just know, but you don't have to think about it. So if you imagine that you're at a stoplight and you look to your right and here comes a snow truck barreling at you, all of a sudden your mind goes into a different space. Your amygdala, it's called, knows how to police your brain and shut off all your senses. So if you spill 
hot coffee in your lap, you probably don't feel it. You don't hear the radio. You hear stop, break, truck, survive. And then when you pull over and you're out of it, those senses start to come back, but you're, you came out of alert. So we go into that place of limbic survival right now. Truck is coming when we're in that fight, flight, or freeze. And those are those moments you cannot make decisions other than how do I survive? So it's, I think, training yourself for those moments. You, we call that coping ahead, knowing that it's yeah. going to come and that our vision is going to be very narrowed onto just that danger. Yes, The problem right. is when you grow up in an environment right. of constant danger, yeah. you lose the ability to see the periphery because you're constantly on alert. Your amygdala is giving you a false alarm. It's saying every situation is yeah, dangerous. Right. So you you don't have the ability to see other perspectives and that leads again to that black or white kind of thinking these these are things that we can teach ourselves by by practicing the skills to be and what a relief it brings you don't have to live your life in those miserable moments or i think what's even more miserable than those moments is the regret afterward when you have you know killed a relationship or said things that are embarrassing or that you regret or that were in panic or you maybe called something out about somebody that you shouldn't have said and you can't undo that absolutely you can avoid that it's not it's not necessary right and we do it (laughs) we do it i do it well from time to time (laughs) right this is allies in recovery member gp traveler when i read posts like she's back from rehab but on shaky ground I feel hopeful for the plan I am working, and it all boils down to love for my loved one and myself. You know, what we say is it's more important to be able to skillfully repair a tear in a relationship than it is to avoid tearing it. So we really stress, how do I make a good repair? Right. Would that be amends? I believe in amends. It would be. Right. And and it goes beyond saying, I'm sorry. Right. If I have hurt you... What do you need from me for you to feel better? Right. What I, I have to, you know, kind of exercise that humility and take time to hear and listen. It can't be, I'm sorry, I'm going to give you or I'm going to do this for you or I'll never do this again. Yeah. That's all about me. A good repair is what do, what do you need from me in order to repair the damage that I've caused. Right. And quite possibly it's work on not exploding on me in those moments or work on your moods or... Yep. You know, and that's a process. Takes time. Right. And it works. Yeah, it does work. Most people recover. Right. Um, When we're overwhelmed is another thing I learned. It helps to big picture it. And I read in the DBT process that there's a street corner view versus the airplane view of the same landscape, which are very different. But pulling yourself back instead of narrowing in on... Mm -hmm. You know, like you said, that danger, that yeah. threat, this need. For me, it was, a ne- I had to be right in arguments because I come from this religious condemnation where if you're wrong, you're not just wrong, you're not you're not a Christian and you're going to go to hell. Yeah. So I would have a whole army of people. It wasn't just, you know, if I argued with my mom, it wasn't just an argument with my mom. It was, I was out of God's will. So it was now me and God and my eternity. And then if it, you add siblings or people from our church, this is just what I was raised in. Yeah. So if you, um, you add people, it was like an army of people saying not only are you wrong but you're you know your life is in jeopardy and so is your all of eternity you know so having that belief system I couldn't have a big picture view of right or wrong I had to solve this problem now because it was it took a lot of therapy for me to realize this was kind of subconscious shadow work and I sat with it I didn't even realize that's what it was operating for a long time but it was that fight flight freeze terror Mm -hmm. Uh, this has got to be solved now so that I can be safe again so every argument wasn't just about winning or being right. It was about, I got to be safe as quick as possible. Not just in this present moment with all these players against me, but it was a grandiose. It's a a schema or a belief or a myth that if I don't have this all contained in a box, then I am in danger. I will die and burn. And you're (laughs) literally, and you, right. Right. Your, your brain is giving you a message that contains an urgency and we talk about an action urge and there's a a compulsion an urge 
to fix it, to do whatever I need to do in this moment to fix it. It's not articulated. It's a it's a physical urge. Right. Right. And that's what we talked that that emotional wave with comes with an urge. How do we step back and just feel the urge begin peak? And yeah. go away. You you don't know that when you're a kid. You don't right. know that when a you're young wife, a panicked a mother. Mom, right. Yeah, you don't. You don't know that that's what's kind of driving your engine, right. and you're idling at level ten all every time there's a problem. And no one's ever told you that, right? Or that it can be different and how to get there, right? That's so, what we do with DBT yeah. is we help people where they are practice and learn the skills over and over until yeah. they become overlearned and automatic and it becomes a new way of living. And it's almost, yeah, I mean, and it's so effective and thorough, you know, just like recovery and, and going to support rooms and all of that. It's so effective in its work that even when I talk about these things now, and I certainly can feel my temperature rise sometimes because it's, you know, triggering. Yeah. But it's almost like describing a movie I saw or someone else's life because the healing and the work becomes so ingrained in you, so infused in your DNA. You literally reprogram yourself that it's almost as if it didn't happen because you're just so far out of it. Absolutely. That's how yeah. thorough the process can be. I mean, you can be somebody that goes from zero to 60 in every situation, mm-hmm. always getting in trouble. You're known for it. It's troubled your friendships, relationships, everything. And that can be completely restructured into a, com- you're just completely different in the way you function and operate. Yeah, it it literally transforms the brain right at a neurological level. Right, and that ripples out to everything. Yep. Everything. And that's life-saving, in my opinion. Um, some of the same old triggers, once you've gone through a healing process and recovered, um, your first thoughts and your old reactions might return. I've heard it said that triggers that used to be like elephants become more like gnats. Mm-hmm. So once you've gone through some kind of healing, your old reactions and old remedies are replaced by new tools, less overwhelm, and those triggers decrease, which I think is what... that point you were just making absolutely it it i can't emphasize enough and it makes me smile to think of it of how we myself and and every other human that's exposed to this and practices is changed is forever changed and it's from the outside in or for the inside out i'm sorry from the inside out it it grows over time it's lovely it is, and it's not a matter of promising I'm going to change and I'm never going to do this again. It's doing the work, knowing where you're at, mm-hmm. accepting and validating yourself where you're at, and just make it, making those modifications and adjustments For that moments, over time are humongous. For moments at a time. Right. It doesn't have to be 24-7. Right. It's we start where we are, one small step at a time. Right. Very doable. Very doable. And it can save every relationship in your life. And you learn to ride your emotions out and have plans, like you said, the coping plans. Mm-hmm. Um, one Another thing that I think people do and don't realize is that you stop fight picking, which is another unhealthy avoidance. You know when people will pick a fight at a certain time of day or an insecurity rises and you find yourself fight picking in other areas? Do you see a lot of that and what do you apply when you know that that's an issue with somebody because a lot of times it's in couples or parent-child relationships and people don't even realize that's their dance is to fight pick. Yeah. I. So if we're talking about doing that as a way of avoiding, right, maybe it would be to change the subject, maybe to avoid right, talking about something else. Maybe it would be to avoid taking responsibility for something. Maybe it would be to insist on my opinion being right and to convert everybody to my way of thinking we need to look at what's my what's my motive what is yeah what problem am i trying to solve by picking these fights right am i even aware that i do it am i aware of the outcomes so is this an effective way to get my objective met Right. I think that's what I'm what I'm hearing that. Yeah. Sometimes we are unaware of our own motivation and we just we're trying to do something that makes sense. We're just not doing it well. Right. Yeah. And I I think I'd heard I took, like I said, the trauma training for the recovery work I do. They had set it up one day. They have these slides that talked about behaviors you see from people. And it is like sometimes nitpicking or fight Mm -hmm. picking, things like that. 
and or um, relationships or, you know, substance use, whatever, they said replace the word behaviors with the word solutions because this, the behavior is, you know, easy to judge or be bothered by. But when you look at it as that person's solution for a problem they're trying to solve, that opens a whole new world of understanding up. Exactly. And if, if I'm nitpicking at you about something that you're doing, and I can't let it go, I can't let it go, you can take that personally, you can believe that there's something wrong with you, you can think that I'm obnoxious and I shouldn't be doing that, or you can consider a different perspective that must be, wow, something about this is really important to her that she's going to such an extreme to try and get me to change. I'm curious. I'm gently curious about what's going on with her. Isn't this interesting? And isn't (laughs) it interesting that I'm having this reaction that I want to shake her? Right. I want to get away. Scream at her. That I want to run and hide. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. I'm interesting. She's interesting. I want to think about this. It takes it down a notch. And it's all about taking it down and not making it work. That's the big picture that I love so much about it. Um, I think DBT works to regulate ourselves. Um, I think, you know, I've had miraculous recovery in my life. My son's got a huge success story, but it also works in the mundane because everything's not about the big events and the great success story. My son is currently going through a struggle um, just in, uh, in a personal area of his life that is, is he's got to walk it out. So we're talking about he's had enough years of momentum and self-work and introspection that he's aware I'm going to walk my dog for a while. I'm going to go sit by the pool with a friend. I'm going to listen to music or zone out and play video games or come back and journal and think about what I'm going through. So I think it's a matter of these skills don't just take care of these big, allergic, booming, red alert moments. They work in the mundane. Absolutely. And And bring balance between the two. (laughs) Which is exactly why some people only need the skills component and other people need the complete comprehensive component. Right. Because if your life consists of everything is a forest fire. Everything's on fire. Yeah. Then you're going to want comprehensive. But once you're into recovery or once you, you know, have sort of developed a skillful way of getting along with life, you may just need a little skills tune-up here and there. It really depends on the uniqueness of that individual. Right. And we figure it out based on where they are, what do they want to do, where, and then what's getting in the way. Right. Where am I now? Where do I want to be? And what's getting in the way? It's now let's sit down and problem solve. Right. And it's worked in his life, too. We're on separate journeys, and we are now, he's older, in separate states. Um, and he had said, and I just love his introspection, that he's very aware of his two triggers are complacency and entitlement, yeah. which, you know, we call entitlement kind of veiled selfishness. And that's where it's like, well, just, I don't deserve this, or this should be going better. That's his entitlement. Or his complacency is when he kind of drops the ball with, you know, working out or being on top of things. And those two things, he knows another rock bottom is not far around the corner so he knows to check his motives and really be not just mindful in the moment but mindfully self-aware yeah and i think that's a great byproduct of doing recovery work in dbt absolutely yeah that's really really been life saving as well um we've also learned to catch the defensive behaviors and the safety behaviors i think we talked about all of that and that verbalizing is so much healthier for your emotional climate instead of locking into those old remedies. Um, and do you know what clouding is? Can you explain clouding? I'm not familiar with that term. What term? That's Maybe kind I of know it by another name. Okay, that's like in the process of conflict. Say if somebody comes at you and says, um, you always get argumentative on Fridays. And you're able to recognize without putting personal offended energy into it. You know what? Maybe the, you're right. There's some truth to that. And you can kind of step back and see the truth about yourself. I had always heard there's a proverb or something that says, agree with your adversary quickly. And that doesn't mean agree with what's false or surrender to, you know, someone attacking you. But if there's something to agree with, you know, if somebody perceives me as weird, and I'm sure that's happened a lot, you know, I have to be okay with that. I have to, you know, that's okay. I'm okay with their experience. I can accept the truth without taking it personal and going into defense mode. They may fit, they may think that. Right. It doesn't mean it's correct. It right. doesn't mean that I have to embrace that as truth. And I might, what can I learn from that? Right. That's the, the question. What might I learn from this? Yeah. 
I have this great advisor. I meet with her regularly for all my work and recovery stuff. And she was telling me that um, her husband, I believe, her stepdaughter, he's got a few kids. One of them said, in particular, said, I don't really feel comfortable around her, so I don't really want to go to dinner tonight. I just haven't got used to her yet. And he, of course, was like, oh, my goodness, you know, I feel so bad, you know, went to her. And she said, well, what's wrong with that? If your daughter doesn't feel comfortable around me, I'm okay with that. She's honest, you know. I'm not going to take that personal and dislike her now. That's that's what's wrong with that. That was a healthy admission. Whether she's right or wrong, and I hope that that changes, mm-hmm. doesn't mean we have to go into a feud that turns into it spreads like a rash. I love that spreads like yeah. a rash because they do. They do, and you know what? That that principle that change is inevitable. Right. Nothing stays the same. We're different. Right. One second to second to second is so important to kind of grasp and understand that nothing will last forever but we feel like it will it will never end right. and it's not even articulated in words in our head it's a sense, sense right. being able to recognize that and label it there's that sense that myth that story that this will never end okay I notice it now right. how, how can I be effective and move forward doing just what's needed no more no less right it just allows me to breathe yeah and dropping that rope if you yeah. don't think if you think it's going to make the situation against you forever that's a false belief dropping the rope leads to solutions it does acceptance leads to solution and off quite often change I have found that when I am fighting with a thing it usually works out after I drop the rope and, and I'm always yeah. thinking why does it still take me so long to accept it because then I know breakthroughs eventually coming but I always have to fight my way through it anyway and yeah and it's what would we have done with that time if we weren't fighting right. the other thing is it allows us then the space to take care of ourselves right because self-care and self-soothing right are such a huge part of being able to stay in the game especially yeah. if you have a loved one who's addicted it's going to be if you have a loved one who has borderline personality disorder it's going to take a lot to stay in the game. Right. So we have to take care of ourselves. And I know it's trite, but it put on your oxygen mask before you try to help someone else. When we drop the rope, it gives us space right. to take care yeah. of ourselves, yeah. which allows us then to be there for them. Right. I cannot agree more. And it took me, I carried that rope for years. I was tied up in knots Mm -hmm. from it. And one of the um, therapists that I had um, become friends with, and I would kind of use her work as a cheat sheet in my own life, she would say, I call the process untangling. And if you think about a big wad of Christmas lights or when your hair gets in a big knot, you don't untangle it all at once. It's kind of a process of untangling. So dropping the rope for me was becoming untied from these old remedies, these old belief systems, Mm -hmm. schemas, and then just kind of coming to a place where it unwound without being as painful. Exactly. And lots of times when we have this loved one who is so consumed with with all these difficulties, worries, anxieties, fears, yeah. addictions, whatever, they, without uh, totally understandable, take this big ball of suck that is their life and <laughs> yeah. throw it at us. Yeah. And what do we do? Triage we it. it. We triage we it. We right. hold on to it. Yeah, it's mine and then now. we decide, I gotta right. fix this. Right. Of course, that's my job. Put it down. Right. <laughs> Put it down. And we're going to take care of ourselves, and we can do just what we can do in this moment. Right. Yeah. So freeing. It is so freeing. Yeah. And then your life can all of a sudden... I remember thinking... Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do all the time because I had to do what I had to do. I'm doing what I should do or what they should be doing or what's going to solve this problem. Life was really about that. It wasn't about enjoying anything. Even the things I did enjoy, I couldn't really ever enjoy because I was carrying this weight around and I was tied up inside it. Yeah. And DBT kind of and recovery and recovery groups, all of that stuff. All of it. Journaling, yeah. everything. You know, I, I, I love yoga, meditation, prayer, and sometimes, but sometimes when you're amped up and you're, you know, triggered or you're coming out of trauma, those things can make it worse in the moment. So I think Absolutely. it's not a one size fits all. And it's not even a one day, it's the same, you know, the next. The process just kind of is as needed. It is. And we benefit from it all. DBT or any other treatment is not the be all, end all, right. it's a piece. Right. And there are so many other beautiful adjuncts that are going to help us depending on where we are, what season we're in, and what the difficulty is. We we need other humans, and we need everybody's talents. That's how we form community. This is a piece, and it's a wonderful piece. Nobody that I know has been taught the skills and practiced them by someone who knows what they're doing has not 
benefited dramatically and that's it's lovely to be able to say I can confidently tell you it's yeah. just like saying you know what I can confidently tell you that a 12-step program mm-hmm. is effective I can confidently tell you that DBT works right. I can confidently tell you whatever you know other, right. that is a gift yeah, and it's like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You don't want the same thing all the time, and nobody likes the same thing. So it's about blending it in, and and really the results are peace. I know there's areas of my life that the evidence and proof are that they're not crazy anymore, yeah. and they're not hurting anymore, and they're not a mess anymore. When life becomes healthy and whole and sane, mm-hmm. and you don't get whipped up this way or that way with anything insane, that's proof of what works. Absolutely. It's not about diagnoses. Right. It It is about function Function, and quality of life how can I create a life that's worth getting up for right that's what we're about yeah we're not trying to fix anybody right so I wanted to ask you just a couple of examples how do you think DBT would work for someone say um, and these are just from people in the rooms I work with and the families that write to me and these are all over the nation Um, so say there's a 13 year old that has meltdowns in class He lashes out or retreats into self-conscious silence and can't seem to handle noise, lights, directions at times. The staff has begun to allow him to do some of his classwork in the school office. A little digging reveals he comes from a really large family where poverty, abuse, conflict, and neglect are prevalent. So would DBT be well incorporated into his life to allow better social skills? Um, And what should teachers and supports or the entourage around him know or adjust when it comes to his situation and helping him make progress? That is, wow, that just makes me sad. (laughs) Even if this is not a real person, it it feels like a real person, (laughs) and I just want to give him a hug. Right. Um, You know, it sounds like his team, his school team, his family team, his, um, if he's involved in sports or things like that, need to all kind of come together, um, circle the wagons on his behalf. And as far as DBT in particular, interpersonally, he can definitely benefit from interpersonal effectiveness skills. But before he can do that, he has to be able to tolerate his own experience and be able to be present in any given moment. That would be mindfulness. Um, And of course, he needs other trauma work as well. But where I would start with a kid like that is I would ask them, I'm, you're employing me as a coach. What do you want me to help you with? Hey, everyone. Because this week's conversation is packed so full of rich information, we are continuing it in part two next week. Listen in for What is DBT with Lisa Bond, DBT Solutions Specialist, to hear case examples, experiences, and a final wrap-up. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Coming Up for Air. Please take a moment to like or rate the episode if it spoke to you. If you'd like the hosts to address a specific concern of yours, please get in touch via the Allies in Recovery website. Visit alliesinrecovery.net today to read what our members are saying about us, learn more about the evidence-based craft method of intervention, read sample blog posts in which we address members' questions, or to join today. That's alliesinrecovery.net. Our theme music was composed and performed by cellist Eric Corey. Thanks for listening.